welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. Only two cases this week. Happy birthday to me. With the extra time, please allow me to once again thank some of my patrons. Eunice Scott, Lorraine Marte, Andre Bocassian, Dave Burton, and Laura Kelly. I appreciate you all so much. Thank you for appreciating me. Let the appreciation continue. What up, BIA? This is What's Up. First, we have Matter of NVG, published by the BIA. This case is about a long-running statutory issue pertaining to INA Section 212H waivers. Mr. NVG is from Laos and entered the U.S. as a refugee in 1989. He adjusted to lawful permanent resident status under the Special Refugee Adjustment Provision at INA Section 209 in 1990, lived some life and did not naturalize, and then in 2001 was convicted of second-degree assault with a dangerous weapon in violation of Section 609.2221 of the Minnesota Statutes. He was sentenced to just under two years incarceration. DHS therefore initiated removal proceedings and alleged that the crime made Mr. NBG a non-citizen convicted of a crime of domestic violence and therefore removable under INA Section 237A2EI. Mr. NBG conceded that indeed he was. The IJ then found that the conviction also constituted an aggravated felony crime of violence under INA Section 101A43F a finding that the BIA also affirmed in this decision. Fine, said Mr. NVG, but I'm still eligible to readjust to LPR status through my U.S. citizen daughter. Because aggravated felonies are grounds only of removability and not inadmissibility, they don't necessarily bar non-citizens from adjusting to LPR status, unless the aggravated felony also matches a ground of inadmissibility. And here it appears that the IJ did find that the crime made Mr. NVG inadmissible, likely based on a finding that the conviction is a CIMT, 
but the decision doesn't say. Fine, said Mr. NBG. I'm still eligible to adjust with an INA Section 212H waiver to waive that ground of inadmissibility. Yes, you are, said the IJ. DHS appealed. The BIA affirmed the IJ. The reasons are based in statutory interpretation. INA Section 212H states that no waiver shall be granted, quote, in the case of a non-citizen who has previously been admitted to the United States as a non-citizen lawfully admitted for permanent residence if, since the date of the admission, the non-citizen has been convicted of an aggravated felony, end quote. Mr. NBG is a non-citizen who has been convicted of an aggravated felony, but not since being admitted as a non-citizen lawfully admitted for permanent residence. Rather, Mr. NBG was admitted as a refugee, and he only adjusted to LPR status later. Now, if Mr. NBG had entered unlawfully or in any other lawful non-immigrant status, this would really be a non-appealable issue. The BIA resolved the dispute in 2015 in matter of JHJ, following a bunch of circuit decisions disagreeing with the BIA's prior 212H holdings. In JHJ, the BIA held that to be barred from a 212H waiver based on an aggravated felony conviction, the non-citizen must first enter the U.S. as an LPR before obtaining the aggravated felony conviction. If the non-citizen does not specifically enter as an LPR, a later aggravated felony won't bar them from adjusting with a 212H waiver. Everyone agrees it's kind of a weird holding, because, everyone agrees, it's kind of a weird statute. But refugee admissions are also kind of weird, because when refugees, and unlike any other non-citizens, adjust to LPR status, they quote, shall be regarded as lawfully admitted to the United States for permanent residence as of the date of such non-citizens' arrival into the United States, end quote. So their admission date reverts back to the date that they were admitted as a refugee. So there's a bit of an argument supporting DHS's appeal, for sure. But the BIA rejected it. The term, quote, admitted, end quote, is defined at INA Section 101A13A, while the term, quote, lawfully admitted for permanent residence, end quote, is defined at INA Section 101A20, and the two terms aren't necessarily the same. Although a refugee who later adjusts under INA Section 209 is considered admitted as of the date of his refugee entry, it's too much of a stretch to also say that he was lawfully admitted for permanent residence on that date. He wasn't. He was lawfully admitted as a refugee. So says INA Section 207. The legislative history of refugee admission supports this conclusion, as does matter of JHJ itself, and the quote, overwhelming, end quote, circuit decisions that preceded matter of JHJ. So Mr. NVG gets his chance to readjust to LPR status. With a waiver, of course. Congratulations, Mai Nyang Mo, for respondent. Administrative Law Note It looks like DHS was making all of this argument in these proceedings originating in Minnesota specifically, because the Eighth Circuit might be the only circuit to have deferred to the BIA's pre-JHJ view of INA Section 212H and aggravated felonies. 
Therefore, case law built up in the Eighth Circuit that directly supported DHS's position that an aggravated felony post-refugee adjustment will bar a non-citizen's eligibility for an INA Section 212H waiver. Very smart, DHS, if a bit rude. No matter, said the BIA, because all of that Eighth Circuit case law was relying on pre-matter of JHJ precedent, and the Eighth Circuit expressly deferred to the BIA then by finding INA Section 212H ambiguous on the issue. That means that the BIA can trump the Eighth Circuit's interpretation of the statute if it wants to by citing to the Supreme Court's decision in Brand X, which the BIA did here. This decision therefore governs even in the Eighth Circuit, unless the Eighth Circuit finds the decision unreasonable. We shall see. And that is matter of NVG. That brings us to the final case of the episode, Alcarez Enriquez v. Garland, published by the Ninth Circuit on September 16th, 2021. This case comes back to the Ninth Circuit following remand from the Supreme Court. It involves credibility and the reliability of evidence. Mr. Alcaraz is from Mexico and was brought to the United States without authorization at the age of eight in 1979. But as an adult, he was involved in a domestic incident with his live-in girlfriend, and he pled nola contendere to a California felony domestic violence-type crime, and to drug charges. The domestic violence crime is really what's at issue here, but according to the Ninth Circuit, quote, the facts of that altercation are the subject to two competing narratives, end quote. There's the probation report, filled with very bad stuff based allegedly on what Mr. Alcarez's girlfriend at the time said. Mr. Alcarez, however, testified later in immigration court that while he did punch his girlfriend, he only did so after he witnessed her physically abusing their young daughter. He denied having done many of the other things that the girlfriend alleged and that the probation report reflected. Anyway, Mr. Alcarez served his criminal sentence and was deported to Mexico. He re-entered unlawfully, was convicted for illegal re-entry, and was deported again. Then, according to Mr. Alcaraz, he was involved in a dispute with his neighbor in Mexico that led to his jailing and being beaten for hours by policemen in Mexico. He tried to come back to the U.S., and he was detained. For reasons unexplained, I served him with a notice to appear instead of, as it seems they could have, reinstating his prior order of removal, meaning that Mr. Alcaraz remained eligible to apply for asylum and every other applicable form of relief in immigration court. He did indeed apply for asylum, and he testified to his version of the domestic violence incident that I just described. The immigration judge found him not credible and overruled his objection to the admission of the probation report, notwithstanding the fact that it was triple hearsay and ICE did not make efforts to bring the probation officer or the ex-girlfriend to testify. The IJ and the BIA then found that the California domestic violence felony conviction was a particularly serious crime for asylum and for withholding of removal purposes and therefore denied those forms of relief. But in the first Ninth Circuit panel in this case, the Ninth Circuit vacated that, holding that the IJ acted contrary to INA Section 240 B4B by, quote, 
not requiring that the DHS make a good-faith effort to procure Mr. Alcarez's ex-girlfriend and the author of the probation report for cross-examination, since the government had proffered that evidence of the two witnesses through its introduction of the probation report. End quote. The first Ninth Circuit panel in this case also, quote, applied our decades-old rule that required us to take a petitioner's factual contentions as true unless the agency made an explicit adverse credibility finding, end quote. The BIA, at least, did not make an express adverse credibility finding, and so the Ninth Circuit took Mr. Alcarez's contentions as true about the domestic violence incident and vacated the BIA's decision for that reason as well. The matter then made its way up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court vacated that second adverse credibility-based holding with its decision in Garland v. Dye. I discussed Dye on episode 58 of the podcast, and this case here was actually the companion case in Dye. Dye, therefore, overturns the Ninth Circuit's second rationale in this case. Because after die, the Ninth Circuit's old rule that it must believe the non-citizen unless the BIA makes an explicit adverse credibility finding violates the Real ID Act. Fine. But that still leaves the first basis that the Ninth Circuit relied on to grant the petition for review in this case. And here, the panel reaffirmed that holding, which means that Mr. Alcarez still wins and lives to fight another day. It all comes back to the particularly serious crime analysis. The IJ found the domestic violence conviction a particularly serious crime by relying on the probation report without requiring DHS to produce any of the witnesses relied upon therein, the ex-girlfriend or the probation officer. This is a problem, because in the Ninth Circuit, quote, the government deprives the non-citizen of a fundamentally fair hearing when it fails to make a good-faith effort to afford the non-citizen a reasonable opportunity to confront and to cross-examine the witness against him, end quote. At a minimum, quote, this good-faith requirement typically requires the government to make some affirmative effort to procure the live testimony of declarants, end quote. Indeed, most other courts nationwide have very strict requirements for the admission of hearsay evidence and generally require that the parties produce live testimony of declarants, including the government. Now it appears that DHS must do the same in removal proceedings in the Ninth Circuit when it desires to rely on hearsay evidence. Otherwise, proceedings may very well be rendered, quote, fundamentally unfair, end quote. This all meant that the IJ and the BIA could not rely on the probation report. And without that, there was insufficient evidence to conclude that the facts of the conviction, even if an aggravated felony, were a particularly serious crime for withholding of removal purposes. The Ninth Circuit did, however, uphold the IJ and the BIA's denial of Convention Against Torture deferral. But the case was sent back. Congratulations, Robert B. Job, for petitioner. It would appear that due to your trip to the Supreme Court and loss on issue number one, you succeeded in getting this previously unpublished case published, thereby making some very non-citizen-friendly law on DHS's evidentiary requirements. Well done. More quotes for you. Again, and to be clear, this case seems to be placing quite the requirements upon DHS before DHS can rely upon documents, even if government documents, and even if at the relief stage that contain hearsay statements. 
And that is because, again, the Ninth Circuit ultimately granted this petition following remand from the Supreme Court, quote, based on the BIA's failure to require the DHS to make a good-faith effort to present the author of the probation report or the declarant for Mr. Alcarez's cross-examination, end quote. That's the holding. Seems pretty clear to me. And how about this quote in all cases where DHS relies on a probation report or a police report? Quote, As the Supreme Court has recognized, and now quoting the Supreme Court directly, consideration must be given to the quality as well as the quantity of the information provided in pre-sentence reports, given the manifest risk that some of the information accepted in confidence may be erroneous or may be misrepresented by the investigator, end quote. Quoting Gardner v. Florida, by the way, if you're interested. It appears that in the Ninth Circuit, probation and police reports are not presumptively accurate just because they were created by law enforcement. And that is Alcarez Enriquez v. Garland. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official immigration review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook, at Immigration Review. And send us a tweet, at ImReview. That's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review. Thank you.